0: Is blue, a his Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 Ninth Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, NinthAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. In February of this year, there was a lady named Diana Xavier who was writing for an online magazine called Odyssey. And she wrote this opening paragraph. I'm sure most of you know the old saying, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes a baby in the baby carriage. For me, this has always been a picture of how love, marriage and sex are supposed to play out. However, the more I get immersed in the media and the messages of this modern time, it seems like this saying is no longer the standard. You don't need me to tell you that we are living in times where the views of those extremely important subjects are changing and they are not changing in ways that befit the way scripture would have us to live. But just in case you need some proof of the fact that those things are changing, consider the fact that that very same month that article was released, February of this year, The Pew Research Center also came out with some information of a survey they had done, some research they had done over the past couple of years concerning marriage and sexuality. One of the findings that they shared among about eight major topics was the fact that in 2007 in the United States, about 14 million American adults were cohabitating. That is, that they were living together without being married. But in 2017, that number had jumped to over 18 million. Interestingly, the largest percentage growth was among older Americans in that number, not younger. It's also interesting, in that very same study the Pew Research Center revealed, that again, the same years, 2007, those who said that males should be able to marry males and females should be able to marry females in a legal way, in 2007, that number was 37%, while in 2017, that number had grown to 62%. Another study was done by a different group released in 2015. It was in a journal called the Archives of Sexual Behavior. And they they revealed what most of us would know to be true as far as the culture we live in. They said back in 1972 that 29% of American adults believed that a sexual relationship before marriage was not wrong at all. While in 2014 that number had literally doubled to 58%. Also interesting, though, in that finding was that those who are, of those who are married, the group most likely to have an extramarital sexual relationship are those in their 50s and 60s, literally twice the number of those in their 20s and 30s who are married. Why share statistics that are depressing and sad when the gospel is good news? Folks, we have to face the fact this is the society in which we live in. But we also have to face the fact that this is not the way God meant for it to be. And we know that from very many places in Scripture, one of which is very famously, where Solomon wrote in Psalm 127, verse 1, that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Keep in mind from that verse that Solomon was saying in that poem that it takes labor, it takes work to build a house, a home. But... If we are not doing that the way God would have it to be done, all that work is for nothing. Some in this room are younger and they may think a sermon like this one is just out of touch, out of date. We don't need this stuff anymore. If you're younger, let me speak for those of, I'm going to say it, us who are older. I turned 40 last year. I have to say us who are older now. Those of us who are older are concerned about this stuff because of Psalm 127 and verse 1 we who are older believe in god's word and we believe that marriage the home sexuality those things must be governed by god's word or our society will collapse and we believe that with everything within us this message is not out of time this message is timely what was God's, God's intention for the home? I hope you paid attention to our scripture this morning because you may have noticed the title for our lesson this morning was from the beginning. And we're in the book of Matthew. What, what in the world are we doing? What, 40 books into the New Testament or into the Bible if, if we're going to be thinking about something from the beginning? But did you notice in Matthew chapter 19, if you have your Bible open to Matthew 19, you'll have the whole outline right there in front of you in the text. But Jesus does a couple of things that I want to point out by way of introduction. First of all, we want to use Matthew chapter 19 because that text takes us back to the beginning. Did you notice that Jesus quoted or at least alluded to what was recorded all the way back in Genesis as God laid the foundation for that very first home in the Garden of Eden, pointing out to us that that was God's intention from the very foundation of creation, from the very foundation of the home. But I also wanted to use the verses that Brother Neil read for us a few moments ago. Because of how we so often use Matthew chapter 19. Did you notice the scripture being stopped in verse 6? How often, when we're maybe having a Bible class or some kind of discussion about marriage and those issues, do we jump directly to Matthew 19 verse 9? Nine? The verse that talks about what's sometimes called the exception clause. Where Jesus gave what is the reason, the scriptural reason for divorce. Jesus said there, I say to you, whoever divorces uh, his wife, except for sexual immorality, the old King James has adultery and marries another, commits adultery. It is that cut and dry. But here's why I wanted to study together Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, or really 4 through 6. It is fine and necessary for us to know Matthew 19, 9. We must believe it. We must stand for it and we must teach it. But ladies and gentlemen, if we do not back up and study verses 4 through 6, we wouldn't have to worry about verse 9 anywhere near as often as we do. If I go into a marriage only thinking about what's the way out, folks, that's the problem. That's the issue. I want us this morning to think about what God said about marriage from the very beginning. You can probably find some more things in the text we read together a few moments ago, but I want to share with you four, none of which are all that deep, but all of which are vitally important. If we are going to have marriages and homes that we should have this morning, if you are a young person or a young adult who's not yet married, but you would like to be one day, I hope you'll listen. If you are married, I hope that you will listen to improve your marriage. But if you're one who is married, has been married, maybe you're widowed or or divorced or maybe you have chosen just not to marry. I still ask you to listen so you can support those of us who are and encourage us to do what God would have us to do in the first place. From the beginning, God intended for marriage to be based upon both similarities and differences. Men and women are different. Now, if you didn't think I was a genius before, I know you know it now. That took all week of study to get that 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 thing in my mind. But before we understand that there are differences, I want you to notice that in Jesus' statement, He also includes the fact that there is a vital similarity in this. Did you notice that He who created them, He created or made them. And it takes your mind all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, where in the creation account we read, So God created literally mankind. Not just man as in male. The word there is the word for mankind. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. And then He uses the genders. Male and female. He created them. God did not... Create one gender and then the other just evolve. God did not create one gender in his image and not the other. He created them. And that implies for us the fact that the male and the female both have intrinsic value and intrinsic worth. Both genders have a soul. And so they are of equal value and equal worth. We ever want to stop abuse in marriage. This one principle would stop it. That both genders are of equal value. It doesn't doesn't mean they're the same in every way. We'll get to that in a few moments. But they both have intrinsic value because they are created in the image of God. They are God's image bearers to the world. In fact, some of those differences are a beautiful thing. But there is a similarity in the fact they are both created in the image of God. But there are differences. Because yes, he made them. But he made them male and female. We live in a society that says that's not important in fact, we live in a society that's beginning to tell us there's no such thing that not only can people of the same gender marry, but there's no such thing as gender. You just decide what gender you want to be for that moment or that season of life and you get to pick. It's, it's fluid. But the Bible stands against that from beginning to end in an absolutely unquestioning way that there are but two genders. Every time the genders are listed, there are two. But no matter what anybody wants to tell you, folks, anybody with common sense can tell you there are differences between men and women. Anybody who's married more than 45 seconds knows that. And they know it for one reason, but just look at the bathroom countertop. The man has six things. A toothbrush, a toothpaste, a razor, a hairbrush, soap, and a towel. The wife has 337 items of which the man can't even identify twenty more than 20 of them. We know there are differences. We know there are differences when... We get a little bit down in the mood. A wife may go out shopping with her friends or go out for dessert. A man invades a foreign country. I mean, there are just differences in the genders. We know that. and those gender those, those differences draw us together and sometimes those differences drive us absolutely crazy. But folks, God sees his glory and displays his glory in those differences. I want to say something that I hope you'll listen to all the way through. Because we often say, because we're fighting this battle so regularly in our society against homosexual marriage, we often say that God did not intend marriage to be for anything but a a male and a female. I want to challenge that. God did not intend that. God made that It was not God's intention that marriage be between male and female. It was God's creation that marriage be between male and female. We've got to stand for that. But then within the marriage, we have to see that even though it's not just a a homosexual versus heterosexual thing, it is within marriage when those genders are together, it is a beautiful display of the fullness of God's glory because he has gifted and made different talents and abilities between the genders. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a harmonious thing. From the beginning, marriage was between male and female. The similarities and the differences. Number two, marriage requires togetherness. I don't know how often I've heard the next little phrase that Jesus quotes here or states here as leaving and cleaving. But that one little statement summarizes so well what you have from the very beginning. First, Jesus says there is a leaving and specifically it is leaving father and mother. And that can be difficult. It can seem almost cold in a way to say that leave father and mother. In fact, the word for leave means that it literally means to leave behind. And again, that can seem so cold. How can we just leave behind right, the, the, the family of origin, as sociologists want to call it today, that, that gave us life and gave us you know, food and shelter and all those things and also gave us love and grace and forgiveness. How can we just leave it behind? Well, we have to balance it with other things found in Scripture, such as the command found in the Old Testament and the New Testament to honor father and mother. And there's no age limit given on that command, by the way. It's not just honor father and mother until you're 16 or 18 or 21. We honor as best we can father and mother throughout life. So there is a balance. It's not just a cold breaking things off and never thinking about them again. advice certainly is helpful and prayers are absolutely necessary. But there is a, a standing away from. There is a, a new home there. Hebrews 13 and verse 4 tells us, among other things, that marriage is honorable among all. I've never been there yet. And I don't want to. Look, I'm not really looking forward to they when it's true. But. If you have children who are thinking of getting married or have gotten married. May I remind you. That you are part of that among all. And that now this new home is one you must honor. Yes you gave those little children in your eyes life. And yes you you raised them and gave them things. But this is now their home. There is a leaving, and you need to honor that. You still pray and help as you can, but we honor that. But may I also point out to you, the text says a man shall leave behind his father and his mother. Is it not possible that what God was placing in mind from the very beginning and Jesus was bringing forward was that this is one of the first signs of true manhood? Is that he is willing to stand up for this this new home, this new relationship with this precious lady he has married? But there is a leaving involved. As difficult as it is, it's very real. And then Jesus says, there is also a cleaving. He is to hold fast to, or the old King James and other translations have, to cleave to his wife. The word that's translated cleave there literally does mean to be joined with. Strong's defines it as glued or adhered together. And I point that out because it shows the, the strength of the word. And it's not to say that the husband and wife can't have certain differences, different hobbies or different interests. That's, that's perfectly fine. They're still people. And they're, they're not going to agree on every last little thing. I don't like clothing shopping. Okay, there there's a difference. I don't like it except for looking for suits. And if you'd like to take me, I'd be glad to go with you as long as you're paying. But there are certain things that are just going to be different. But it's to say that none of those things can put a wedge between the husband and the wife. They are glued together, joined together. And by the way, considering the fact that the verse had just said that he is to leave father and mother, you do not see how sometimes that can put a wedge between that young couple or that new couple being married. When it comes to being glued together, joined together, folks, glue can wear out. Adhesive wears out. A couple is wise who takes time in investing in making sure that glue remains strong. I really don't care how long you've been married. If you are not willing to read about marriage to attend marriage classes, to go to seminars or whatever it takes to make sure that that glue is strong, you're not doing it right. I'll I'll just say it that way. We have to be willing to invest in making sure that glue is strong. Remember what I told you earlier? The the age group most likely to be involved in an extramarital relationship are those in their 50s and 60s, not in their 20s and 30s, because the glue wears out if we don't work on it. But notice how the leaving and the cleaving both mean that the husband and wife are together this is not a joint venture this is not just some kind of mutual agreement they must be together but it's more than that because in the third place jesus tells us that marriage requires a commitment they are to become one flesh that statement brought forward from genesis chapter 2 is obviously said here by jesus in matthew 19 And then the Apostle Paul would also bring it forward to us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 29, reminding us that it is a timeless principle for relationships, for marriages, for all time. But what does it mean? So often we think about this idea of one flesh. We only think about that intimate sexual union that only husbands and wives are to enjoy. But if we only think of it in that way, we've missed the point. The Bible very often uses the terminology or the picture of the flesh To mean more than just the skin, the outer covering of of the body. For example, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 12, it's told that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Joel chapter 2 and verse 28 speaks of God pouring out his wrath or his spirit, excuse me, upon all flesh. Now, I point out those references because it's obvious that they weren't just speaking about the skin or the outer covering. They were speaking using the word flesh to speak of the wholeness of something or the entirety of something. Genesis 6, all of mankind have been corrupted. Joel chapter 2, God was going to pour out His Spirit upon all people. That's the idea. And what does that have to do with the one flesh picture found in marriage? It is using fleshly imagery that we too often only define as the sexual union to symbolize that marriage is a full commitment to the entirety of the other person. The intimate union is part of that. In fact, it could be argued that it is the ceiling of that. But one flesh is not only that. I put a quotation in your handout, so I hope you'll take a look at at your convenience. But Timothy Keller, in a book he wrote on marriage, said this, He said, the Bible says, don't unite with someone physically unless you are also willing to unite with a person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way because you have given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage. To those who are younger or those who are young adults, So often we teach rightfully so that the sexual relationship is to be saved from marriage. And that is true. To be involved in that relationship before marriage is sinful and is wrong. But I also want to point out to you from this principle, it is also highly unwise. Because we should not be willing to give that part of ourselves to another person until we give our whole person to that other individual. Not just in a physical way, but in every way. But once a male and a female are brought together and married, they are to be committed to the entirety of the other person, to their flesh, their one flesh. They are now one unit, if you want to think of it that way. But amazingly, marriage is even more than that. Because in the fourth place, marriage also involves a covenant. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, or as you may have learned as a child, let not man put asunder. God is the one who brings people together in marriage. Now, culture may have different ways of performing the ceremonies or taking care of the legalities of it. And that's certainly fine. Nowhere in Scripture are we told how to perform ceremonies or what documents need to be signed or who needs to sign those documents. But the Bible makes it clear that God is the one who oversees all of marriage. Folks, even if two atheists get married, God is actually the one who married them. Because he created the institution and he rules over the entirety of the institution. The word that's translated joined in that verse, what God has joined together. It came from the picture of when you would take two animals and yoke them together to work. And you may think, yeah, that's something no, I'm not going there. But it's, it's an interesting picture, though, because it's not a it's not a negative picture. It's actually a beautiful picture because what the verse is saying is is that God has taken two things that are similar two oxen or two horses or in this case two people he has brought them together and placed them in something to work on they labor in vain they labor but they're going the same direction. You don't yoke two animals together with one facing the front and the other one facing the back. That doesn't make any sense. What does that have to do with Christian marriage? You marry someone who's going to the same place you are. Young people, date a faithful Christian. Because you want to marry someone who's going to the same place you are. And when God joins you together, your teamwork will lead you to that place. How beautiful is that? What God has joined together, let not man separate. The same word is found in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 8, excuse me. The famous verse that nothing can separate us From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It points to the strength of the word. It points to the the gluing together, the cleaving of marriage. It should be that difficult to separate a husband and a wife. Folks, we have got to see marriage in our culture as more than just a contract. We certainly need to see marriage as something far more than just a construct of society. It is even something deeper than just a religious tradition. But we also need to see marriage as something more than just commitment, although it takes that. In the eyes of God, marriage is a covenant because God deals in covenants. He made a covenant with Abram or Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that God never broke. He made a covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 6 that he still has never broken, where he would never destroy the world through water or by a flood again. He made, if you please, a covenant even back in the Garden of Eden that he would bring that, that promised one, the seed of woman, And he certainly did that through Jesus the Christ. God does not break covenants. And so when God brings a husband and a wife together, that is a covenant relationship. And the husband and the wife, husband or the wife, need to do nothing to strain that covenant. But neither do I need to do anything that might strain another's covenant. I don't need to put any undue strain upon that husband and that wife. We're living in times where marriage is trying to be redefined, undefined, completely taken away, seen as unimportant, divorced from reality, told it's a passing fad, told it's something that's thrown on the ash heap of history. And we know as Christians, those things aren't right. But I'm also concerned is when I when I look at Christians who are married. And sometimes it seems as if all we're doing is just enduring a few decades Folks, Christian marriage is far more than that. When done in the way God defines and describes and commands, marriage is taking the vertical light that God shines down into this world and reflecting it outward to a society that wonders how in the world can you do that? That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 would compare the husband wife relationship, even to the, the extremely intimate relationship between Christ and his church. That's why he could do that. It's why, when you come to the end of the Bible, even heaven itself is described as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Folks, Christian marriage, godly marriage, is great. It's great. It's not something just to be endured. It's not something we just sign up for and try to make it through the rest of our life. It is God honoring. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, welcome one another for the glory of God. That is God's word for your marriage. Thank him for it. Thank him for leading you thus far. Ask him to establish your marriage, to confirm it, sanctify it, and preserve it. So your marriage will be for the praise of his glory. Amen. A lesson on marriage is not one that transitions easily into what we often call the Lord's invitation except to say that it is that picture of Christ and his church, Ephesians chapter 5. Christ has laid down his life. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves his bride, the church. Are you part of that church? If you are, are you living in such a way whether it's in your home and your marriage Or somewhere else in your life, you're living in those ways that reflect that I really am a child of the King. I really am part of that bride. I really do love Christ because He loves me. I don't want to see Christian marriages just survive. I want to see Christian marriages do even more than thrive. I want to see Christian marriages that are alive and are shining the light of God in a very dark world. This morning, if you need to become a Christian or if you need to become a more faithful Christian, returning in faithfulness, will you come always we stand and sing to encourage you?